0: Our loving Father, we thank you for the extraordinary way in which your word is living and active. And it speaks to us in the different situations that we find ourselves in, different people in this room, different places, different stories in life at the moment. And yet you speak to each of us. Father, we long that you would speak this morning for, through Psalm 3. We, we don't simply want to get a get better grasp of this psalm, but we want to hear your voice to us. Please speak, in Jesus' name, Amen. This, um, this book, the Bible, it is a very honest book about life, about the, the reality of living in a broken world the reality of living in the now, so there are the highs in there, the good stuff, the joys, and the lows as well. There's genuine joy, there's happiness and pleasure and excitement and delight. And then there's pain and hardship and evil and suffering and anguish and grief. It's a book that's not airbrushed, Or photoshopped. Suffering is not an illusion, something we need to to get over and rise above. It is just real. It's a real book. And so one of God's gifts to us in this journey of life, as we face those joys, as we hit those difficulties, are the Psalms. There's a book, They're songs that speak to us, that they get down alongside us in the muck of the reality of the mess and they open our eyes. They teach us truth, that they remind us of God, they give us hope, they keep us going. And yet it's more than that, they don't just speak to us. It was Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, he said, He said this, he said the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because most of the scripture speaks to us while the Psalms speak for us. That they give words to our experience. I know at Maldon Road that's been true for many of you over the years. As life has been hard. The Psalms have really helped, they've verbalised your response to reality. They've spoken for you. And, of course, they don't just speak for us. What did Jesus primarily quote from the cross? He quoted the Psalms. Psalm 22, Psalm 31, Psalm 69. At the time of most suffering ever in the world, the words that he takes on his lips come from the Psalms. So as we kind of do these summer series, I really don't want you to think of it as just a filler. That's sometimes how we can think about stuff over the summer. While people are away on holiday, there's a lack of continuity. So we'll just do something to fill and we'll start properly again in the autumn. But actually, I want us to to know, to, to better be able to experience, to express ourselves in the reality of life. To faithfully and biblically respond to life now. To move back, <laughs> to take our joys and our sorrows to the Lord, and I think Psalm three, as we begin for this morning, kicks that idea off very helpfully for us. So here is King David modelling for us how to deal with hardship. So you know that feeling? You're in the thick of it. You're sweating. You're panicking, your heart is racing, you're up to your neck, there's no way out, there's dead ends everywhere. And you lie awake at night, and you're tossing and turning, hounded, harassed, helpless. That situation, that deadline, whatever it might be, has been looming over you for months. And you can't process it, you can't think straight, panic has set in. And yet, just imagine your own son turning on you. Turning on you to the extent that he wants your title and your position and your status, and so he wants you dead. That's the depth from which Psalm 3 comes. You can see it in the title. Do You see, written by King David when he fled from his son Absalom. The story actually flows on from David's adultery with Bathsheba and then his, his disposal of her husband Uriah. Sin has this horrible way of, of infecting, of spreading. But that's the territory we're in for this morning. You can read the accounts, you can read the background and the judgments in 2 Samuel 12. You can see what goes on in 2 Samuel 15-18 as you read of Absalom and what he tried to do. But that's our situation. In a room of this size, Psalm 3 will be tonic for you now. David's situation feels very close to yours in many ways. There's something that is consuming you, that's eating you up, there's some reality that's looming large over you. Everything else is overshadowed. For some of us, it may be words for then, whatever then might be. Perhaps months to come, perhaps years to come, something coming around the corner, and it's learning now how to cope then when it all falls apart. Before we jump in there, I just want to look at one more thing as well. I want you to notice where Psalm 3 comes. I think in many senses, Psalm 3 is, is the first proper psalm. I think that's important. Psalms 1 and 2 are the kind of double doors, the way into the psalms. And so Psalm 3 is the first part of the main body. Psalm 1 introduces things. Do you remember if you know Psalm 1? But by zooming into how to live a godly and blessed life, choose your associates wisely. Steer clear of the wicked, of sinners, of mockers, and plant yourself into the life-giving word of God. And there, ultimately, you will be seen as righteous and blessed rather than facing destruction. Psalm 2 then zooms right out, big picture, introduces things there and says, God rules the nations, he establishes his king. This king will rule and will judge rebellion. And so find refuge, at the very end of Psalm 2, do you see, find refuge in this king rather than being crushed by him. And so what's happened in Psalm 3? Interesting, isn't it? Here we have enemies. We have Absalom and his army doing what they're seeking to depose, the one that God has placed on his holy hill. The king that God has enthroned, Psalm 2, well, they're seeking to do away with him. It's Psalm 2 undone. And Psalm 3 opens, at least, with David in turmoil, King... It kicks things off with David being in a place of unblessing. Surrounded by ungodliness. Hounded by enemies. I think it's striking that Psalm 3 then kicks things off and shows both what happens when Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are undone. And how we look to the Lord. Let's jump into Psalm 3 though. Verse 1 to 2. First point, tell God about the enemies we face. So, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God God will not deliver him. Suddenly we're inside David's head. Our pulse is raised. Absalom's army, there are enemies everywhere. See the repetition. Many, 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 swarming, teeming, engulfing him. Presumably they're his men who have left his ranks and joined his son's army. And it feels hopeless and out of control. Desperate. Psalm 1 and 2 read like those times in your life when we can't, when we do, we focus and we concentrate and we fixate on issues and our problems. And everything spirals out of all perspective and we feel overwhelmed. That's David's situation. But despite that, what's he doing? Verse one. He, who is he speaking to? He speaks to the Lord. But prayer is not the last resort. It's something to have a go at when everything else has failed. Prayer is the starting point. Prayer is the reality of where it begins. In the midst of the mess, David prays. He tells the Lord what is going on. He doesn't internalise his suffering. He's not stoic and cold and just crashing on. He doesn't keep British reserve or stiff up a lip. He speaks out to the Lord that he loves. Suggesting that sadly, I think too often our hardships can reveal something of our self-sufficiency. We try and sort the problems out ourselves. Someone said trouble should trigger prayer. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. That focus is interesting, isn't it? It's their words that he looks at. They are mocking him, they are mocking his faith in God, they're they're mocking his faith in God to deliver him. If you read the account in 2 Samuel, you'll see it gets pretty dangerous. Scary, but here the pain David mentions comes from what they say to him. Maybe chipping away at his confidence, just causing doubt, maybe doubting God's goodness. God won't deliver him. Don't words have power? Perhaps even more so than our actions. I remember looking back at primary school. I, um, I wasn't particularly nice. I got into various scraps and various scrapes, and I can remember... Very little of what happened. But it's interesting how I can remember what people said. The words that they use. They pick up on insecurities and hurts and little comments that just stick. And they bury down and we replay them. And they stick with us. And we sing, sticks and stones can break my bones but words will never hurt me. But it's not true. Don't words have power? It seems in the Hebrew, they're not saying God cannot deliver him, in verse 2. They're saying that he will not. That they're sowing seeds of, of despair and of doubt into David's mind. The question for us is, will they take root? Will these doubts grow? Will they flourish Will these doubts be fruitful? What what do you do in that situation when you feel like it's verse 1 and 2 time? What do you actually do? Well, look at what David does. Verse 3 and 4, he remembers the God who is bigger. It's almost as if in the fog of the torment, David orders his prayers to God and focuses in on four aspects of God's character in verses 3 to 4. I'm going to read those verses. I want you to see if you can spot the four things that he recalls. F- four aspects about God for us to cling onto when it feels like verses 1 and 2. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Four things. I think he's a God who protects, a God who is sufficient, a God who dignifies, and a God who listens. We'll look at each of those in turn. Firstly, a God who protects. That's there, as you see him describing the Lord as a shield in verse 3. David is God's anointed king. He is his little sea Christ. God has put him on his holy hill to rule. And so I take it there's a confidence that King David has that God will protect him. He will shield him because he knows the character of his God. He's not protected from danger. He's protected through danger. David has had to run. He's had to leave his home, his capital city, his throne. He's he's lost his dignity. He's been humbled. But still, finally, he is confident that God will be a shield and will protect him. Now, like David, we're not protected from danger. Friends, difficulties will come. But in his fatherly kindness, we can have the same confidence that David has, that God will protect and will shield us, that he is working everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will, that he's working all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew he also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God does protect and shield us, and that's not just a kind of glib add-on. Romans 8, just stick that on the end there. Life is hard. It can be messy and painful and really hurt. But in the midst, we can cling to the fact God is in control. He is at work. He will protect us in the midst of the mess. He will shield us. Secondly, he's a God who is sufficient. I take it that's what's going on where he describes God as his glory. So imagine David's situation. He's potentially lost his position, his kingship, his power, his might, his status, his throne. He's lost everything. But David says God is enough. God's glory is sufficient for him. David's value, identity, worth, everything doesn't come from his position but comes from God. The God who loves him. Again, the rug's been pulled out from underneath you. And you're not quite sure who you are anymore or, or what your position is or what life is really about. Maybe things you've relied on have been removed. For well, he is your glory. He is enough. You're one of his and he is sufficient. Thirdly, a God who dignifies. I think that's the lifting up the head thing in verse 3. It's the football team who have gone three goals down in five minutes, but he still maintained dignity perhaps unlike Brazil, whose heads are still lifted. They find they are restored in some way. They're able to keep going. They find hope. So King David, this head lifting, perhaps is looking ahead to what God will do or remembering God's character now. In the midst of the turmoil, David remembers who God is and his situation changes. Despite the stress, despite the threat, despite the danger, he knows the character of his God. Listen to, um, listen to Spurgeon on this verse. He says this, he says, What a divine trio of mercies is contained in this verse. Defense for the defenseless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless. Verily we may say, there is none like God. But it doesn't end there. Fourthly, we have a God who listens. Do you know, we can find it hard to believe, can't we? When it's all going wrong. However alone we might feel in the situation, we're not alone. Prayers aren't simply bouncing off the ceiling. Verse 4, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Holy Mountain, that's the place where God dwells. Geography doesn't matter to somebody who studied at university. Geography is not important. David has left Jerusalem, he is away from Zion, he is away from the Holy Mountain, he is away from God's dwelling place, but God hears and God answers. What does David do in 3 to 4? Well, when you're in verse 1 to 2 territory, what does 3 to 4 look like? He fills his mind with the Lord. He fills his mind with the Lord who is bigger, with truths about his character, with truths about the God whom he loves. He fills his mind with what God is like. But let's be honest. When life is really bad, when we're really up against it, it is very hard to do that, isn't it? Isn't that the truth of our situation? At those points, often, we far more easily see through our natural eyes than with the eyes of faith. We panic. We forget what he's like. The situation, verse 1 to 2, is looming over us and we don't know what to do. We've got many, many, many foes closing in on us, mocking us, deriding us. Whatever the situation is for verse 1 to 2 for you, the trouble is that situation can be far more compelling than our God. Verse 1 to 2 can trump 3 to 4 very easily. Isn't that the case for you? It's very often the case for me. When life gets hard, we have very short memories. Wouldn't it be amazing to be a people who, who, who so know him and love him and trust him that when trouble comes, we just remember what he's like. We have a confidence that he's in control. We, we turn to him rather than turning away from him. We grasp that we might be helpless in solving the situation, but that he is willing and able, that he protects and glorifies and dignifies and listens. So that we might be a people who who fill our minds with the Lord. We know him and trust him and treasure him and love him and delight in him. So that when verse 1 to 2 comes, and it will, well, we're so caught up with what he's like that we maintain perspective, I wonder practically whether that's, for some of us, just getting to know him better. Maybe reminding ourselves of what he's done in history or what he will do, or looking back in our own lives and seeing his faithfulness and answered prayers. Reminding ourselves of what he's like. It's almost like the professional sports player or or musician who, who practices and practices and practices for hours and hours and hours such that when the time spent training comes into use, your muscle memory kicks in and... You don't have to think about it, it's just there, it's natural. You've remembered, you've learnt what God is like. So when you need to know that, it's just there. You love him, you trust him, you know his character, you know his ways, it's just natural. For David though, this isn't just Theory. These aren't ideas for him to kind of latch onto. This is reality and it has an impact then. His his perspective is changed. He he finds comfort, he finds peace, he finds sleep. And so third point, we can enjoy the peace that is ours. I lie down and sleep, but I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We say, what is he doing? There's a political coup going on. This is not the time for sleeping. Do you see Jack Bauer sleep? This is a time for action. This is strategy, defense, problem solving. Let's get to-do lists sorted. Let's sort out our plans and our priorities. Let's fix the mess. And of course there's a place for that. But he can sleep because he has peace and he has peace because he knows God. Verse three. But you, Lord, he's confident. He can rest. He knows it's not about him. He knows his Father who's looking after him. He has peace. Sleep's interesting, isn't it? Some people have no problem sleeping. I can see that this morning. (laughs) It's a joke. But for many of us, sleep is the first thing to go when stress comes in. You find that is a helpful thermometer on someone's state. It's a useful pastoral question to ask people. How's your sleep? What's keeping you awake at night? What's making you toss and turn? I look back on my life and friends I know who have had difficulties. They were the times when sleep didn't come easy, often. Panic comes in. We find ourselves in verse one to two. And we needed to remember verse three to four, but, but it's easy to forget. We forget what God is like. And yet David has peace and so he can sleep. It seems it's a short-term thing in verse 5. He seems to have a nap and he wakes up again. But then verse 6, it's long-lived. It's a genuine difference now. He won't fear the tens of thousands who assail him on every side. He looks at the future in a different way. If armies are lining up against him, if, if tens of thousands Imagine the ranks. Think Lord of the Rings. David will not be afraid. He has a peace. He has a peace, but more than that a confidence that God will deliver. This confidence in seven is interesting as well. The the original that the, the verbs are, are all in the past. It's as if it's already happened. Absalom and his men, though, they're still there, they're still a threat. But you see, he uses the past tense because it's as good as done. He is certain he will be delivered by his God. He's remembered his character and so he knows what his God is like and he can trust him. It would be, if I gave you a letter to say, could you, could you post this for me? And you say, it's done. Of course it's not actually done because it's in your hand. But I can trust you. It's a future certainty. David is certain about his deliverance. He's sure of God's rescue. God will put him back in his rightful place, his rightful city, his his rightful throne. He will be God's anointed one back where he belongs. It's, it's a violent prayer, verse 7. That, that shouldn't surprise us. I'm not sure it should really even concern us. These were violent times. David's praying for for a knockout blow to to end the assault, to to bring freedom, rescue. But remember too that his prayer is an extraordinary amount of, of personal pain. When Absalom was defeated, so his beloved son was killed. David is praying for deliverance. And so his son dies. And then verse 8 is striking. From the Lord comes deliverance. That's certainly been the example here in Psalm 3. But then he says this, he says, May your blessing be on your people. I just wonder if that's a hint of what is to come. We just get a glimpse, perhaps, that this is the lot for the people of God. In this world, in these times, the righteous will suffer. Often the wicked do prosper. And so, verse 8, they will need his blessing because they will need his deliverance. That's why the Psalms speak so clearly to us, because we live as they did in the now, we have some reality of living with Christ now, but they're not yet. We're looking for more. We're looking for consummation. We're waiting for a hope. And so is that the lot for the people of God, verse 8, that we, we need God's blessing because we're going to need his deliverance to keep going for him. Psalm 3 it's a glimpse of the bigger picture as well, isn't it? You see, that Psalm 3 points us ahead, it points us ahead to a time when, when one from the line of David would suffer again in an extraordinary way. When God's truly anointed forever king, great David's greater son, when Jesus Christ would be set upon by all the enemies of God. By sin, the world, and the devil. Verse 1 to 2 pale into comparison with that what David's son would go through, the reality that Jesus faced. And yet three to four, Jesus knows the character of God the Father, but he doesn't call out for deliverance. He says, yet not my will, but your will. He knows he will not be rescued, because God doesn't deliver him from death, he delivers him through death. And it's through his death in the place of his people that God's enemies are dealt with forever. That verse eight, we can be finally blessed. You see, great David's greater son, through his suffering and death, brings us blessing because the enemies of God are defeated forever. So, modern road, what do we do when we're in the eye of the storm? When everything's falling apart. Well, we don't stop speaking to God, verse one. We can be honest about the reality of our situation. Not to just be stoic and crash on as we are, not to pretend that everything's alright. We can be honest with Him. But then we remember verse three to four who our God is, that our God is bigger. And that will bring us a perspective. We fill our mind with him. We start that now. So that it's there for the then. We remember his protection and sufficiency and dignity that he brings us. The fact that he listens, he he answers. And we remember the one who is with us, living this side of the cross. We remember the one who has gone before us, who has suffered for us. And so we find comfort and peace in the pain. We find a hope for the future. see, finally and ultimately, he is at work in the mess of your life. The difficulties that you face. And finally and ultimately, he will deliver you. That deliverance may be into his kingdom forever, but he will deliver you because he's good. Let's pray. Loving Father, we pray for those in this room and friends whom we love and care for, who are in verse 1 and 2 territory at the moment, who are facing hardships and frustrations and difficulties and foes, suffering oppression, And we long that they might know the reality of you with them, that they might remember your character, that we might remember your character. And so find a peace when we remember who you are. Forgive us, Lord, for being so forgetful. Forgive us, please, for trying to crack on on our own and do things in our own strength. Help us to trust you in the midst. Help us to know that you are the one ultimately who will deliver. And we pray that you might grow us in maturity. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.